if you go away for a summer vacation and you come back and you think, oh my God, the city is moving so fast. And these people are so well dressed. And it's like in just a very brief period, you have degentrified. Six months, you know, some people have been out there for six months. They, they can't come back, Lee. They, they can't yeah. come back. <laughs> yeah, there's no coming back. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. This is part two of my conversation with author, strategist, and anthropologist Grant McCracken. We discuss the impacts of COVID from a cultural and anthropological perspective, for example, the effect on the US family that COVID is having and how COVID is rewiring the city and how we think about it. We also explore some non-COVID themes and trends, including competitive charcuterie boards. Yes, you heard me correctly. And we also talk a little bit about Grant's new book and work around the artisan movement. Now, this episode was recorded on the 26th of February 2021, just a few days before NFTs went mainstream. So there's a few references to that in this conversation. And it's amazing how far things have come in a a few weeks in respect to NFTs. So part two of my conversation with Grant McCracken. So I'm delighted today to be able to continue my conversation with Grant McCracken. Uh, There's so much we wanted to talk about and could cover in our first conversation. So it's brilliant to have this opportunity to speak to Grant again. Welcome back to the show, Grant. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for the chance to chat. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, obviously, we're in this middle of this COVID pandemic. And from uh, an anthropological and cultural perspective, it's so interesting in terms of short term people's reactions, but also through to potential long term Uh, impacts that it may have so when you're looking at COVID through the work that you do thinking about business strategy or or kind of different effects it may have on attitudes and behaviors and outlooks and um, are there any particular things which stand out to you as particularly kind of interesting and significant? Yeah we saw some big changes in the American home and the American family and I thought you know it's been a preoccupation for my research for 30 years. And um, I thought, wow, this will be, I mean, not to be ghoulish about it, but this was a chance to see the American family in subject to extraordinary pressures. And and, and I thought, well, I'll wait and, and see just how Americans respond. I, I talk about Americans. I think this refers to most people in the, in the great Western experiment. But um, what you can depend upon is that people, you know, rise to the uh, suffered the difficulty of of some major disruption, and then rise to the occasion by figuring out how to how to cope with it. And and that showed in the ethnographic data almost immediately. I was talking to women who were uh, managing households that were now under lockdown or locked down, um, and seeing extraordinary acts of adaptation. An original, you know, period of of confusion and distress, and and then mothers appearing, especially to say, you know, this is up to me. Uh, I, you know, if this family is going to get through this difficulty, it'll be because I figure out something. With men as fathers and spouses being much less active, um, as one woman put it, she said, "My husband went into the living room and looked around to see if there was a room that had a closable door." spotted the den, went into that room and closed the door. And he's been in there for the duration of the COVID 
So it's like dads absented themselves. Young men often, in America, we accuse them of, of spending too much with their screens and, and you know, entering into a digital space with their friends and being less kind of active and present. Um, but this was their absolute opportunity for adaptation, right? What everyone had scorned them for doing was now the perfect adaptation to the difficulty and they just, they just found their friends online and were, were, that was their world. Young women took a very different approach. And this is where I think mothers and daughters found one another. Um, mothers said, you know what? Well, there are really two tracks here. And let me start with the, the first one is about mothers looking at the fact that they were no, you know, many, if not most American mothers uh, work uh, outside the home and they commute. Now that they didn't have to commute, they had this extra time. And for a couple of weeks, they said, this is a windfall. I have this extra time. And they regarded it as, as, as just an act of great good luck. And then they began to feel about that time as if it were their time. And they began to use it strategically to help the family through the crisis and especially to refashion their relationships with their daughters. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But so what they're saying is that very quickly, within like four or six weeks, they decided that um, that that time that had now come to them, thanks to COVID lockdown, they began to feel about that as as their time, as time that belonged uh, to them. And so when asked by the corporation, by the place they work, to come back to work, their reaction is, uh, no, thank you. I found all of the all of that buffing and polishing that went into going into work and then all the commuting time and all of that stuff now, now seems gratuitous. More to the point, it's my time and I found a precious purpose for that time. So no, I'm not coming back. So how much time are we talking about, Grant? On average, average, do you think? The American average is, I think, at an hour of commuting time and many people commuting much more than an hour. And then there's all the buffing and polishing, the buying, the clothing, and so all that stuff. It, it could easily be an hour and a half, two hours a day. Yeah, no, it was a big chunk. Okay. And so women said, you know, while we're on the topic, can we talk about what was happening there? I think about going into work now that I know that I didn't have to, and I look at it and I think, well, what was going on here? I think it was theater. This was a performance of some kind for some purpose other than getting the job done. So I don't know if this in the UK people did this, but there was a moment when um, after 9-11, uh, airports became much stricter about their security and we all you know, dutifully went to the airport early and stood in line and all that stuff. And then finally, somebody who knew about this said publicly, most of this is theater. You know, it's really just to make you feel better or to make the authorities feel better. But this thing is leaky as can be. People can get past the airport. Um, and people are using that same metaphor here. They were saying, you know, work was theater. And then that you can see them kind of pushing the argument. They say, if work was theater, who was it for? And then you can see them contemplating the possibility that it was for men in the C-suite. All this buffing and polishing and driving in and showing up and being presentable, you didn't have to do that for work. You were doing that because men in the C-suite wanted to look down into the parking lot and see it fill with cars every morning as an act right. of deference to the majesty of their standing. I um, think just this week, Grant, we've seen 
three of the, the CEOs of the major banks, got Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, I think, and Barclays, all the CEOs have come out and said, we, we don't think remote working is the new normal. And we want to get people back into the, yeah. the office yeah. As, as, yeah. as soon as possible. And they do set out an argument for that. But I, I just thought I was quite topical in the context of yeah. what you were saying. Absolutely. So I think what's going to happen here is that we'll reach a compromise and the corporation will say, this is a longstanding notion in Silicon Valley, that it's only when people are eye to eye and toe to toe that they can engage in certain of the acts, especially of creativity on which the corporation depends. And so maybe people will go in two days a week. The corporations that say you must come back for five days a week, I think are really asking for trouble because their best and their brightest have said, and this will take us, uh, we'll come back to this when we talk about the artisanal uh, development uh, communities outside the big cities. When people take up residence there and discover the pleasures of being resident there, I think they're gonna say, you know what, um, I'm, look, we're good. They will leave the corporation that demands that they come back for a five-day week, and they'll find somebody who's prepared to have them come in two days a week or not at all. And so there will be a huge kind of, it's like the formation of Pakistan. There's going to be this huge um, uh, reapportionment. The most talented people who can easily find a job uh, from an, at another corporation will do so. And you'll have those, the best and the brightest just leaving corporations that will be left with uh, I heard about a corporation some months ago that asked everybody to come back to um, their small town in the Midwest and half their marketing department, this is before COVID, half their marketing department, the best, the better half of their marketing department resigned and, and moved on. So they effectively took uh, the talent resources of, that the corporation had built up with all those exquisitely made HR decisions and squandered them. Uh, they made themselves dumber and stiller and you know, less adaptive. So yeah, I think we'll see a big change there. Everyone is thinking about the world of work. I think that's going to be really an interesting area to watch. I'm wondering how much of it is related to autonomy. In the last episode, you talked about the difference between fast culture, slow culture, big trends, small, small trends, and so on. Right. I wonder how people are going to feel about remote working when they've been doing it for like two years or three yeah. years. I think yeah. that there's going to be a kind of maturity curve, if that's the right, right. word there. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of people for whom not commuting and remote working can feel extremely liber liberating. Yeah, I'd be interested to speak to, you know, a sample of people after they've been doing that for a long time to see yeah. if they still, you know, feel yeah. the same. So that's kind of mothers looking at work. Mothers looking at family, husbands absent themselves, sons absent themselves, and they say, I got my daughters back. And what they're saying is daughters came home from college. Daughters who were late, middle, late teens, who were the captives of a kind of um, TikTok Instagram culture, popped out of that engagement. And for some reason, not being able to see your friends in person meant that you wanted to engage with them less online which is something I found completely counterintuitive. When, when I was at yes. MIT, we thought about this a lot, what the combination of real world contact and virtual contact would be. And I would have thought that, that daughters would do what sons were doing, girls would do what boys were doing. They would double down on Instagram and spend more time there. In fact, they were spending less, which meant they had more time for their moms. And then you were the third category, that's like 
girls who be sort of between, I don't know, seven and, and 14 or something, um, who were, who effectively thought of their mothers as a taxi service. Uh, because in the American case, it's just this frenzy of activity and you have to go off to ballet and you have to go off to prep for various exams. And, and moms effectively would do most of their mothering through the rear view mirror. You know, can, taxi right? service, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that had stopped. So suddenly mothers and daughters were alone together in the home undistracted and astonishing things happened where mothers and daughters began to build this, use this time and the urgency of the moment to build new connections. So there's some lovely data where people talk about, moms talk about watching TV with their daughters and sharing their favorite shows and being a kind of seeing eye companion. And in the case of mothers of a certain age, inviting their daughters to watch the Gilmore Girls. But his mother and daughter chatting constantly and wittily and interestingly. And so a lot of that was happening. You would see in local, in my local neighborhood in Connecticut, you would see two women walking down the street. It was mothers and daughters in a deep conversation. They were really listening to one another. And it seemed to me, you know, talk about practical advice for brands and so on. I think one of these days we will um, not very long from now, we'll go to restaurants and the place will be half filled with women, a mother and a daughter, trying to sustain that connection that they accomplished during the COVID era. Yeah, so COVID's made a big difference. Oh, so one more piece here, and I'm sorry, let me know if I'm just going on at too great length. But the family, so I've been looking at the family and you can see three moments. You can see the cozy moment, that sort of display plus cozy moment where homes were there for display, living rooms, you made them perfect and never went into them. You found a room in the house and that was a, a cozy place. So that's stage one. Stage two is the great room where you knock down the walls between living room, dining room and kitchen. The place becomes more open and it's it's designed for many purposes, including it allowed women now to entertain without effectively acting as the servant in the entertainment. It changed how people entertained and it changed how they raised their kids. In the old model, it had been kids were asked to sit and behave themselves at a table during mealtime. And it was vexing for them and vexing for moms to try to persuade kids to be civil at the very moment that there's food on the table and their brother's kicking them under the table. And it's like fun. It's, you know, it's an opportunity for chaos. And moms had this sense that, you know, I have to civilize my kids. I have to give them manners. I have to make them presentable for polite company. And mealtime is, is a critical moment where that has to happen. With the great room, with this stage two, women just said, oh, please. I'm not doing this anymore. It's stupid for them. It's stupid for me. I'm not doing it. And the great room was perfect because often it meant that kids were running an orbit around that island at the middle of the great room. And um, it was looser and more convivial. And, and then, but what happened under COVID was mom said, look, the only way we get through this horror is by adopting uh, my rules. And my rules say, I want everybody coming back to one table at one time for one meal and one conversation. It's like this matrifocality, as they call it in the anthropological literature, suddenly installed. That great room was loose and capacious. And now, and I think of it as a kind of big bang in the family, things flying outwards. And COVID just meant everything fell back in to a center. So um, yeah, so lots of stuff going on there. You've written in the past, or talk, I've heard you talk in the past about 
how also that was about a, a statement, almost like a status symbol, the big kitchen, you know, the, mm. the, the modern kitchen, and that became the center of the home. So mm. I wonder whether, coincide with all these other behavioral trends, whether we'll see, you know, an emphasis change to flexibility being more of a premium people having to do different activities in the same space like i use the same room to exercise to work to mm. whatever or whether there's going to be an emphasis on maybe the home office is like the mm. new trophy room and again if you're oh. a brand or a business you know in right. in that space yeah this is trying to sort of show how this then links back to commercial and business opportunities or or, or how these anthropological changes relate back to things which are coming down yeah. down the track yeah i mean we had already been seeing in the american case houses people lucky enough to have a house um which meant sort of more space and more rooms were using that space almost to make it these homes began to feel like self-sufficient um almost like spaceships like they would have a home theater and they would have a home gym. And it was like they were trying to duplicate all the spaces outside of themselves within themselves. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, High street all, at home. Almost. What's that? Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so, and this will have given a huge impetus for, uh, for home offices, which existed, but were kind of almost decorative or notional uh, as opposed to actual, but now of course they're, uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens there. I mean, I just, in the conversations we've had, generally speaking, but the last two conversations, it seems to me that, I mean, I've been talking too much and apologies for that, but- Oh, you're on, you're on a podcast uh, and yeah. I'm asking you questions. It would be bad. <laughs> it would be a, a crappy episode otherwise. It's hard for me to see how much of, so we have always had these great conversations, lively and creative and free flowing. It's not clear to me, I'm interested to see if you share this or have another point of view, but my notion is, I don't think, released from the constraints of the podcast, left to have just the kinds of conversations we had would have in London, would, would our, the creativity or the fluidity of those conversations be different for the fact that we are having them by Zoom, do you think? That's the million dollar question, I guess, in, in terms of a content. I, I, I guess they would actually, but maybe not to the extent that you might think. So I, I think this type of communication works, it's functional. And I think if you've got two people who are connecting and into the, the subject, then it can work. But I think things like body language and if I wanna contribute or you wanna say something and we don't talk over each other that's much easier to mediate that kind mm -hmm. of thing face to face and there's an undeniable energy between two people in the same space mm -hmm. so i don't know if you could turn it into a percentage but right. I, I i i would imagine that the conversations certainly in terms of the act of having the conversation irrespective of the listener the, the, the act of doing it together in the same space, I think mm -hmm. would be different, but w whether you could hear the difference in an episode, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it's great that we can, because you're over in Connecticut and I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm no, in London. Yeah. yeah. Um, and certainly if we were talking in person and there were a blackboard or a, a white space, 
we would be up and using that in no time, I expect. And I think there's a way of duplicating that online, but it, it feels different to, yes. to have somebody in the same room and you've got a, you know, you've got a blackboard and you're working on it and you're kind of throwing the chalk back and forth. That, I don't know that the absence of, of, of co-presence there, I think really makes a difference to the, the feverishness with which you, you start working with ideas when you're, in, when you're able to externalize them, get them on a board. But I, I think that touches upon something which I think is, is very important and is, is sometimes overlooked, is this idea of, of meaning. And I think when we're talking about remote working and everything we've been talking about, the changes in, in, in the workplace, if we think about what work means to people, then I, I think it becomes super interesting. If you remote work uh, and, you know, everyone's going to have their personal preferences of, of where you set the dials. But I think mm. one of the things that will influence where those dials are set is how connected do you feel to the business, to the purpose, to the outcomes, to what's to what's happening. Because if, if you're too disconnected, it becomes, in quotes, too remote, mm. then I wonder if it loses some meaning. And for some people, that won't matter to them. But I think for, for, for other people, certainly in creative jobs or lots of other things, even though they could do their work fully remote 100% all of the time, I wonder if you've been working like that for two, three, four years, I wonder if there's a, an abstraction or a disconnection or whether work in itself would have the same meaning. And so bringing that back to whether we were having this conversation face to face, I think the act of it and, and the meaning that it would create for us for, through the lens of a participative experience would be different remotely. Mm. I'm interested to see how that will play out with, with the world of work and other things where you, it's perfectly possible to do them remotely, but do they have the same meaning to the human? Right. And it may be that the kind of intellectual work we're doing in the course of this conversation is somehow augmented or um, by uh, either prior introduction, you get to know somebody in, in uh, either in another conversation or in some social context. And that becomes some weirdly necessary condition for certain kinds of intellectual exchange. And that you need to keep renewing the social in order to enable the intellectual, which would be the, the big, that's the thing we used to talk about in Silicon Valley, right? It's that, that we pass one another in the hall and all we have to do is what's called the eyebrow flash, right? You just look one another and you raise your eyebrows. Like, I see you, it's funny, we're passing. Um, and that somehow enters into um, the, the, the inclination and the ability to have a free exchange of ideas. Right. And, and maybe that's why we will say people have to come back for a couple of days a week. And, and then we'll have to decide, is two days enough actually to, to yes. restore that social uh, um, condition um, that the creativity is possible online? I don't know. We'll, it'll be fun to see. I think another lens to look at this is, as, as well as the meaning lens and the context that you're talking about, I wonder what kind of stories do we have to tell about the world of work? 
when we're working remotely. If I think about some of my best times in the different jobs that I've had, uh, and then if I think about what my life would be like remote working, you're quite isolated in, in a way, you obviously connect online, but what kind of stories would I have to tell? Mm. Um, you know, whether it's my commute down the hall or whether it's sitting at the same desk or being post lockdown, I'm going to be able to work in a cafe. I can work here. I can work there. But I, I wonder whether there's something around the stories and therefore the memories that are created when you're remote working as opposed to all the opportunities for banter or things going wrong or funny moments that you get in, in a workplace. The question would be, are those somehow bleached yeah. out of the working experience? Even though you can work remotely, are you yeah. basically taking the seasoning out of the dish? Yeah. 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 No, that's very interesting. And it reminds me of data I collected for Netflix in London a couple of years ago. And there were maybe 12 people sitting around an oval table working together. And um, they were talking to one another as they did so. And they were texting furiously, literally almost beneath the level of the desk. And what they were doing was commenting on what one another had said. So there were two discrete layers of conversation commenting to other people in the room yes right okay so they were you know making comments about the sheer stupidity of of what that person at the end of the table had just said which is like fabulously english if i may be allowed a cultural stereotype right that notion of a quiet kind of discourse that's invisible where everybody you can just tell by the alignment of someone's head what they think about what the person beside them just said right that kind of meta analysis is a beautiful thing I guess you could do that online, as long as you were certain about the security of the of of the of the channel you were using. Uh, but it wouldn't quite be the same, I think, as as no. what that is. And so yeah. that's a weirdly kind of fractured solidarity. You're building solidarity with one person, even as you throw another person under the bus. <laughs> under the <So>. bus. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you see this happening in the U.S. or other areas that you're looking at, but certainly. In, in the UK and much of Europe with the lockdown, we see the city centre being very quiet. People are no longer commuting there. They're ghost towns in, in a lot of respects. Although interestingly enough, certainly in London, traffic is, there's lots of traffic on the roads. But mm. the city centre is, is, is very, very quiet. Whereas mm. in zones, you know, two, three, four out into the suburbs, it's almost been a bit of a renaissance Mm. out there in terms of local shops, all the things you'd expect. Do you see a similar thing in the States? And do you think there is going to be potentially a a long-term trend here around, you know, the city, smart cities, where the center of gravity is? Has, Has COVID reshaped the city and how people think about the city? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, people are looking at New York City and it feels so under-occupied and and desperate and disheveled and in some cases really dangerous that people compare it to the New York City of the 1970s and the 80s where where everyone was terrorized effectively by the, by the city was 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 a monster a predator in your midst and that changed in the 90s and and into the present day but it, it's still an active memory 
people talked about New York City in those days as if it were trapped in a, a death spiral. They were saying, and this was something more than just an extravagant act of metaphor. They were saying, listen, um, as the city grows more dangerous, you drive people out um, and they take their taxes with them as a result of which the city has fewer services to con control itself so that danger grows. And so you just necessarily, the city must die. So that's what people are now talking about New York City as a possibility, a kind of a, a failure of the gravitational field that holds people in. And then you end up with the city as, as something distributed, or perhaps even a kind of exploding star where you just, uh, I forget the, I think the stat is that 300,000 people filed change of address uh, notices with the US Postal Service in the first six months of, of COVID that people were just getting out and staying out and they were moving to, sometimes they were going to summer homes, which that worked beautifully. Other times they were renting. In other cases, they were buying. And so now you kind of can contemplate a city that grows ever more unpleasant and dangerous. And that's the book I've just finished called The Return of the Artisan. Interested to hear how Londoners think about this. But New Yorkers had this phrase called bridge and tunnel. And it was the way they would sneer at anybody who wasn't as sophisticated as them, right? And the notion was, well, New Yorkers live in the city, and that makes them paragons of sophistication. And then you're these bridge and tunnel people who come in by train or by car, and they're not sophisticated, and they're, you know, they're on, we just as soon live without them, um, but they insist on showing up. That's, uh, so anything outside of New York, Long Island, Connecticut, uh, upstate New York, these were places that were regarded as Hicksville, right? right. This is where bumpkins lived there. And, uh, and, and that I think changed thanks to the artisanal economy, right? You could now live in upstate New York and you could be um, a paragon of a different kind of virtue. You could be artisanal, you could be running a small startup, artisanal startup, um, you could be participating in a community that was held together by all of these acts of, uh, of generalized exchange where people weren't really keeping track of who got what from whom, things were just, things were just moving back and forth. Um, so the city, the, the, that countryside, let's call it, for lack of a better term, became more gentle, more interesting, and more sophisticated and hipper. It was in touch with something vital in our culture. It wasn't cheaper. Much, much, much cheaper. In some yeah. cases, the best cases, you were taking that salary that AT&T was paying you to live in New York City, and you are now spending it in an economy where you are, you are a prince now. You are so wealthy by comparison. And do you think that that kind of redistribution is going to be a long-term trend? I think the artisanal thing ends up, first of all, to knock down barriers... Um, the bridge and tunnel sneering, and it, it creates an adhesive. It creates a kind of gravitational field so that when people, you know, take up residence towards the end of Long Island, there's something there to capture them. So they're not just waiting it out. They're actually now participating in the local economy and patronizing the local restaurants and connecting with neighbors. And then there is, I think, a kind of adhesive. Now you have something that keeps you there. 
And so that really increases. We just, this today in the Wall Street Journal, there was a, an article by Peggy Noonan, who's quite well-known observer of American life, who said, look, the city is in desperate trouble um, and, and New York City will never be the same. And, and, and it's broken in some important sense, the city is broken. And well, we were talking about this a moment ago, I guess, but the notion is, well, what happened in the 70s and the 80s with the, the repair of New York City could happen again. Why wouldn't it happen again? Yeah. And, uh, and I think there are four answers, one of which is we now have the technology to work outside. And then we have these, what do we call them? Proofs of concept, right? That they're that you don't have to give up your credibility as a social actor, that there are people you kind of know and like there, that there is a gravitational field out there. Those four conditions, I think, go a long way to suggesting the possibility that some people won't, a substantial number of those 300,000 people will think very hard before they come back. And if the city is in decline, they yeah. just won't. And I guess you get the mirror of all the negative forces that you've described, which holds the city back once it doesn't have the money to invest and so on and so forth, rising crime and so on. All of those things, especially around um, artists, you know, artisan culture, is that in a way it's, I guess some people here might call it gentrification. It, it's almost been accelerated that, you know, the artists move in, then you have the nice coffee shops then somewhat some experimental chef moves in so yeah. on and then you fast forward five years and and you know the incumbent community can no longer afford to to live there yeah. certainly that that's an ongoing force in yeah. london and has has been for for many decades but the potential covid could accelerate that because in you've almost leapfrogged a whole set of steps and in a sense the the could it be that the blast radius of gentrification has been you know ratcheted up a further yeah. further out with this combination of a convergence of remote working people living further further out who still have great salaries but then those people or people who in quotes like nice things or expect certain standards in from local shops yeah. cheesemakers wine merchants all of a sudden you get this uplift where this town that didn't really have any gravitational pull as you, as, as you describe it. Now you put a few of the right businesses in there, then yeah. actually it's a, turns out to be a great place to live. Yeah. And you might even have a de, de gentrification happen where people spend enough time in these new communities that their wardrobes begin to change, their sensibilities <laughs> begin to change, right? They become less, I don't know what the, you know, what happens to us when we live in a city and we take on a certain sense of our own. Something. It's the theater that you talked about people yes, getting polished to go to work, right? Um, yeah. That we are, we are actors who deserve the, the exalted quality of the stage on which we walk. And you, and you, and you, you lose some of that, right? And you become... I mean, and I think everybody who does, we call them summer vacations here in the States, but it was sometimes if you go away for a summer vacation and you come back and you think, oh my God, the city is moving so fast. And these people are so well-dressed and it's like in just a very brief period, you have degentrified. 
six months. You know, some people have been out there for six months. They they can't come back, Lee. They, they can't yeah. come back. <laughs> yeah, there's no coming back, detuning. Yeah. Well, humans, as, as you know better than I, are such complicated creatures, which is what makes this so fascinating. Because at the same time, I hear what you say, and I recognize what you say. But I also think, in tandem with that, for some people... There's the flip side that they can't wait yes. to ditch your to ditch all this loungewear and <laughs> uh, uh, you know or athleisure wear and yeah. and get back to you know getting dressed up for a night out of those yeah. uh, of the of those moments again similarly yeah. maybe to remote working they maybe some people don't want to do that all the time but that idea of uh, you know of putting on a jacket or the, the nice pair of shoes um, yeah. I also feel there's maybe some pent up demand for in quotes the big night out and the, the costume yeah. and theater that goes with that yes i totally agree that there's something thrilling about dressing up and and carrying on and i think even before we get back to that this two day a week model would satisfy both both inclinations but um i think we might have a studio 54 moment when we finally are freed of the virus, right? And that people will yeah. really go truly nuts, that the club scene will ignite and people consume heroic quantities of chemicals of one kind or another, that abandon will be the order of the day. And how long that lasts is, is, a, is an open question. But for people like us interested in culture, those clubs create unbelievable acts of cultural invention, right? Those yes. clubs are laboratories and it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of those, those clubs. Yes. Art, music, points of view, fashion. Yeah. yeah. So if we move the question on a little bit, so it's not not COVID specific, are there any particular things that you're tracking at the moment or any particular signals that you think are, are, are super interesting at the moment? You know, for anybody who presumes to kind of cover the breadth of of change taking place in contemporary culture, there's it's an embarrassment of of riches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that just sprang up oddly, I did a research project on wine and wine consumption in Toronto, and I was interviewing a, a woman in her late twenties. And in the course of that conversation, talking about wine, she talked about the occasions. When wine's consumed, she talked about what she called competitive charcuterie. And I thought, oh, that's that's beautiful. Wow, that, that is artisan uh, culture right there, isn't it? Exactly. So, you know, I'm always looking for data. I hope anybody listening who has data and wants to share that data will, will get in touch. But uh, at the moment, I'm a scavenger. Um, so I'm, I'm finding, I'm taking data where I can find it and, and uh, Pinterest, has noticed an uptick in competitive or charcuterie posts, images on Instagram or Pinterest that show charcuterie boards. Um, and so I, I went back to this woman and I said, let's talk some more about it. And she said, yeah, you know, the reason it makes sense for me is that I'm a millennial who's never been well enough paid to establish a full adult, which she calls an adult compliment, you know, the home, the well-appointed home, the kitchen. I've been sort of shut out of what normally happens for people as they enter adulthood, they begin to cook differently, to eat differently, to entertain. They now have a, a well-appointed kitchen. None of that stuff's been available to me. And what char charcuterie does is give me something that feels 
done that feels cultivated uh, without demanding of me the full complement of things that, that are they work. making the charcuterie or, or are no. they they're buying no. it it's just how it's displayed exactly on, on so the boards with the pickles and all that stuff right exactly so it has some of the characteristics of the entertainment she wants to do in any case but it doesn't demand the full infrastructure that she would have had were she a 20 year old a 20 something year old um so which is kind of interesting but the more interesting insight i thought came later in the interview in which she said you know there's something about charcuterie that looks like my life Okay. It's, it's pieces brought together for this purpose, but these are purpose. These are pieces that could be reconfigured, that could be deconstructed, that could be undone and brought back together again. There was something in that that felt to her like, like it captured some of the logic of, of her social life and even in her intellectual life. It made me think of Moni Adams, was this wonderful anthropologist who was looking at um, uh, Indonesian, Indonesian textiles. And she noticed that the textiles, if you looked at the textiles correctly, you could see a model of Indonesian life. Okay, you're right. That effectively, in, that the textile was an abstraction of something that was happening in the social world. Um, and, and so the charcuterie, so an anthropologist is always keen to find that moment where the immaterial, some set of cultural understandings and conditions and logics and constraints is manifesting itself somehow somewhere in the, the designed world. Um, right. And so maybe that's one way to think about the charcuterie piece of this, uh, which, would be, um, which would be fun. I mean, you know, one of the things everybody is sort of heartsick about is what's happened to, to young men, uh, just to generalize wildly, you have some sense that women have risen to the, you know, suffer as they will, certain kinds of anxieties um, and trepidations. The, the social media, uh, like TikTok, and, you know, that's a much more uh, female uh, domain. And women have risen to that occasion to perform online. And guys just haven't, and they've kind of shrunk from the social domain and taken to gaming online. And so when they, the notion is, we have this phrase, failure to launch. Um, right. And it's this, guys who get to the edge of college, uh, high school or college, freeze, because uh, they don't quite know what's expected of them. Um, and they know the rules have changed. You know, me too, is send a message, right? I mean, our culture is filled with moments of reconstruction, recontemplation, and what they know is that they don't know what the new rules are. So that's something that the big board is, the Griff is designed to kind of keep track of, but I'm not quite sure how to do. I think we have to say that certain kinds of sociality must have changed during the COVID era when people are spending so much time online with uh, friends and relative strangers and perfect strangers. I'm sure there's just this great blossoming of sociality and communication and sharing of ideas and all that stuff has happened, but it's, I have no way into that. So yeah. at this point, it's something I know I don't know, as it were. It's amazing how much, you know, even, even taking COVID out of the equation, how much of contemporary life is in the midst of being rewired, whether it's yes. gender, whether it's masculinity, whether yeah. it's the world of work, whether it's family, everything yeah. is in a, a process of incredible change. 
So it's a it's a fascinating time, um, yeah. anthrop anthropologically speaking. So in the culture camp, I do I argue at the end of it. Listen, we're taking on new structural properties. Every individual, every organization, every family uh, community is becoming more fluid, more capacious, more multiple, more dynamic, and. I'm hoping that's still true. We'll see. I mean, COVID certainly created this uh, concentration as people returned to convention, right? The comfort food was once more back on, on yeah. the menu. People, I have a friend who runs a big firm <laughs> and, and her response to COVID was to, I mean, this is an incredibly intelligent, capable, sophisticated woman who suddenly found herself watching uh, the, the Hallmark Channel on television, this may not mean anything to, to the English, to the British visitor, but Hallmark Channel, it's always 1958 on the Hallmark Channel. Every show appears to be about Christmas and people having these kind of very witty conversations. It just feels like, like dime store Noel Coward. It's just agonizing and, and it's completely generic. And you know at the beginning of the show exactly, you know, we've talked about this before about how the new television has reworked the, the, the contracts between viewer and showrunner. For the better. For, oh, totally. Right? For, totally. Because as, as you, you know, it used to be Dukes of Hazard and yes, stuff like exactly. that, right? And now, yeah. now the, the, the viewer is at least treated with a lot of intelligence, right? I mean, totally. the TV that we have, much of it is rubbish, but general, generally there's some brilliant, brilliant yeah. shows, yeah. better than films, a lot yeah. of them. But here's a woman so traumatized by COVID that she's returned to the most ordinary, predictable TV possible. So there has been this whole notion that new structural properties await us. There's been, this big hiatus has been put in place until we come out of this thing. And whether we'll ever come back fully out of it and get back to this new fluidity and multiplicity and um, remains to be seen. Mm. One thing I'm, I've been thinking about a lot more and more intensely over the last couple of years is this idea of how consumers think about value. And I wonder if employability, that is to say, a business's approach to employment is going to become the equivalent of the next fair trade. So, so hmm. that is to say that, will I in the future buy products and services from a company where I know the value is captured mainly by algorithms and a mm. handful of a handful of people. Mm. And at the moment we live in a world where we're abstracted from the consequences of that. Most people are extracted. So technology has always created unemployment and it's always created opportunities. But it's just I wonder whether we're at this at some point in the future now that so much of the world is about data and that data can be manipulated and passed and um, acted upon by algorithms that this whole effect is amplified. I, I read this sci-fi sci book by a guy called Richard Morgan called Altered Carbon. It was turned into a Netflix series. Oh yes, series. I know it, yeah. Okay, and in the book there's this, this scene where, and actually it forms a big part of the movie, but it was the kind of throwaway passage in it in that you have all these AI hotels, but 
humans choose not to say stay there because it's it's an AI corporation, and if you spend your money there, no, no money is going to a human. And hmm. so I I wonder whether as we move to more automation or all that abstraction gap between the consumer and the company is closed as more people realize that their employment relies on either someone choosing to buy from them or someone choosing to employ them and at the moment people don't have that direct yeah you know cor uh, correlation in the in the mainstream obviously some people yeah. are put out of work because of technology I just wonder that whether that's going to accelerate. Mm. I had a, a conversation with uh, the CTO of a very well-known fintech in London. Uh, he's the, they're not the CTO now, but they were when it was founded. And he said to me, I take it as a personal failure each time we have to employ someone. Wow. Right? In the sense that he's a tech guy and he wants to automate. And so you have this thing where Instagram, when it was sold for a billion or whatever it was, there were like seven or eight people who worked there. So you get this massive scale. So I just wonder when, when we have more and more companies taking that view, whether that consumers will look at companies that actively don't <clears throat> employ people. Right. And you'll almost see this recur this resurgence of, you know, we employ humans as a sort of badge right. of of, of honest that's a kind of long-term trend I'm, totally. I'm i'm thinking i'm thinking about i love the sound of being employed as a a, a cameo appearance um a, you know a human that's allowed to wander around the halls of the corporation to create the impression that in fact we're employing humans despite the fact that most <laughs> of the value but listen this makes me think of um what's happened with fanfic and fan art and all the content that kids by which I mean probably anyone under 35, has created for the digital world and for which they have not typically got paid. Um, and we've had, I wrote a piece called um, Screw the Gift Economy, a reply to Clay Shirky, which was unusually kind of uh, unparliamentarian of me. Um, but I just thought, you know, the next time I hear an intellectual who has tenure and a robust salary and lots of book sales and speaking engagements tell me how wonderful it is for somebody who's 14 to have to um, surrender the fiction they're writing or the art they're making with no compensation whatsoever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because this is the gift economy. And oh, it's so fight back the tears of gratitude. It's so beautiful, people giving freely of themselves. Well, you know, they can do that only because they're living with their parents and they don't much, if they don't much like their parents, that's a burden. I was talking to some, a young woman in her probably 20s and she was showing me this art she was making. It was like unbelievably good. And I said, um, this is great. I mean, do you get paid for this? And she said, well, no, I don't. You know, I'm just happy to put it out there. And so I let her kind of rattle on you know, to give me the orthodoxy. And then I said, but really, this is so good. Shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't you get paid? And she looked at me for a moment and said, yes, I should get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I, the, the, you've got kids who have to work at McDonald's every summer for want of the small amounts of value capture 
that the internet is brilliantly good at, thank you very much. You think about what Bitcoin can accomplish. You know, it can track this magnificent piece of art that's getting moved, shuttled around. You know, blockchain can keep track of its movement. It can show that it's creating value because it shows up in one of our decks, um, one of the decks we create for our audiences. And we know we have to pay, even if it's just a buck, you know, the right number of um, pieces of art um, used by the, the right client base, you wouldn't have to work for McDonald's. So it just seems like um, it's it's really dumb to treat this as a gift economy when it should be simply an, an economy, a real economy. Yeah, this feels huge to me. Every, everything you've just talked about, not only for, I think it bubbles all the way up to normal business because a lot of what the internet or early digital disruption the, the basic premise was, you know, give it, give it away to build a base or certainly in publishing, yeah. uh, you know, or, or, or music, it's like make the content free, monetize through advertising uh, and, and so on. And the, the net effect of that is a lot of people have grown up now where, you know, content has no value. They expect everything for free. So there's huge implications in terms of the mental models or what people value yeah. Uh, but I, I, I wonder whether because we're starting to see rise in digital subscriptions for media, you know, a lot of new brands that are coming out behind paywalls. We've seen the New York Times reach 7.5 million subscribers this month, whether people are now certainly when it comes to journalism, things that, you know, a, a corner starting to be turned where actually if we want good news, we, you know, we need to pay for it. Or if someone has spent years developing a craft and, and, and does something, then if it's good, you, you like maybe things like Substack subscriptions oh. and newsletters, pe people are seeming <clears> to <throat> maybe the tide is starting to turn a little bit. Cause I think, yes, the democratization of, of information is great, but there has been some, some countersides and i think what you're saying about blockchain is super interesting this idea of you know tokens and digital scarcity and being able to track sales i think that's going to be huge i think it's either last week or this week sotheby's has their first or christie's has their first uh, auction of a digital only uh, piece of artwork and 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 that's made possible through you know tokens tokenizations mm that that sort of trend about the gift economy and where that's going next if i'm if i'm working in thinking about strategy and business for me is is huge and mm. and 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 the the impact of of tokenization mm. to create digital scarcity or to be able to track and charge with things digital i think we've only scratched the surface on that mm. I think totally. it's, it's, it's super interesting mm. so just to mention as, as as we move to to wrap things up you've written loads of books and you have a new book coming out in in the summer called uh, the return to the artisan mm. so you've talked about the artisan economy before why write this book now what was it is there a particular new angle or take that you have on it why why did you feel that this was a an interesting subject to sort of tackle now uh, and I was slow to this party. I have to say, I remember in the 1980s, maybe somebody telling me about the advent of an artisanal economy. And I look, I remember looking at her and thinking, um, you're a kook. This will never happen. Um, there will always be an enthusiastic minority who cares about artisanal cheeses and stuff, but it's never going, it's never going big. It's never going broad. Shuttle forward 
to about maybe 10 years ago, I'm doing an ethnographic interview somewhere in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm talking to a middle-aged, middle-class woman who's showing me um, the drink that she makes to supplant Coke and Pepsi in her life. And there's nothing that's not conventional about her. Um, even this creation of her own soft drink um, is, is conventional. Her friends are doing it. She takes it for granted that this is what she should do. And I thought, wow, I didn't, you know, that, that took me by surprise. I, I'm sufficiently bad at anthropology that I had early warning and, and I didn't get it. It's difficult. Uh, and I, you know, the world had to kind of hit me over the head. So you could see it kind of running up the adoption curve, but more to the point, you could see it sort of changing the logic of capitalism. You could see it being designed deliberately as a challenge of the industrial economy, especially, and changing some of the terms of, of, of production and consumption. And, you know, for a while, at least for a guy as in a, unobservant as me, looking at um, farmers markets, I just thought that that defines how marginal this is. It's literally a group of people on the edge of a community doing commerce that I uh, had no idea that the logic of that farmers market was now present, active, changing. One of the clearest uh, kind of measures here was the decline of uh, CPG, uh, consumer product goods, all of those uh, goods that show up in the middle of the grocery store that are packaged and processed and chemically adulterated. Um, those things were, uh, you could see there was a moment, I don't know, maybe five years ago where you could see executives fleeing CPG companies for a variety of other loca uh, occupational locations. And you could, you, could, you could see that the insiders had lost confidence in the proposition and were getting the hell, they were rats abandoning the ship. So, but the, I guess the big piece was, I thought, you know, you could see this not merely as something that is a kind of an, an adornment that is fixed upon um, urban life of a conventional kind. And it's just that your cheese is a little different and you eat more yogurt and well, you buy things from that farmer's market. You could see that in fact, this was going to have uh, powers of transformation beyond anything I had suspected. So I think that's when it, when I thought, you know, this is with us in earnest, that it won't, it's not going to be ornamental, it's going to be transformational. And that's when you could go to the publisher and make roughly the pitch I've just made and said, you know, this is the time to write this book. It's not, if you look at it from one point of view, you say it's too late to the party. If you look at it from another point of view, you say, no, actually, this is an opportunity to create a kind of observation platform that is comprehensive of all the things we've seen leading up to this, but then looks forward. So the last chapter is a chance to think about what happens to American culture when it becomes, when cities are decentralized and people move out uh, into the hinterland uh, to take up residence there. And this was before COVID, right? This idea was kind of present before COVID and then COVID was just an accelerant uh, yes. for the trend. So so I've literally just finished it, but um, Simon & Schuster are working um, feverishly to have it out by the end of May or the beginning of summer. So hopefully it'll be out, uh, it'll be out soon. -ish. Fantastic. And, it, and in that sense, it sounds like when you talk when you're talking about or certainly when i think about artisan my first response is very much about the thing you know that the, the cheese the 
farmer's market, the, and I guess what you seem to be, what I'm picking up from what you're saying is actually the term and what it implies can be much bigger in the sense of this, the fallout from this return to the artisan affects places or creates these gravitational fields that we were talking about. So the implications yeah. of it are, you know, uh, bigger than better cheese. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. That it really has found its way into the some of the most fundamental cultural things that were true of us and now are less true. It, it, you know, it's, it really is, um, ends up being a, a, a powerful transformational uh, force for cultural change. Yeah, because it's almost as if every ca category, every product category, you could almost feel like a potential strategic way in is what is the artisan equivalent yeah. of this? Yeah. And I mean, to what extent do you think the term artisan is a proxy for saying we care about what we do? Because mm. often the, you know, the outcome of what people yeah. are doing is about care and taking time and all the things that you can't do when you scale as a, as, yeah. as a corporate. Is it, is, yeah. is that how some of the yeah. things that you've seen? Is that, is that how it plays out? Yeah, totally. Which creates some real sort of structural tensions. I mean, there's nobody more embarrassed um, than an artisan who's suddenly created something that uh, makes them a fortune. Um, so uh, that's, um, you know, that's key, right? Nobody wants to make surpluses here. That's somehow a way of uh, uh, compromising our claim to being an artisan. So I think people are, are careful about that. Uh, you know, are concerned about those issues. It's almost as if the artisans I were talking to, you know, lots of people are not making enough money. And then there are some people who are making too much money. There's a kind of sweet spot in between there that's hard to hit. Yeah. Um, and I think people are getting better at that. Yeah, it's so competitive, I guess, is because the barriers yeah. to entry for starting any kind of business is are so low now, which is great. But obviously, yeah. the competition really heats uh, heats up. Yeah. So Grant, thanks again for for, for Oh my pleasure. Time. Really fun we've as always covered... it is to chat. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. We've covered so much uh, uh ground yeah. in these couple of conversations. Uh, I loved yeah. it. And um yeah, best of luck with the, the launch of uh, the Thank you. The, the new Thank books. you very much. And Sorry, give my, my regards to Molly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> Good. All right, Grant. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, thank, thank you so me. much. My thanks again to Grant for this wonderful conversation. And to you for listening, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. If you did, then please consider writing a review or giving us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information on Grant and his work and books, follow the links in the podcast notes. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, my name is Lee Sankey and keep well.